Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs and your host for this episode. 2019 marks the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Bauhaus School in Weimar, Germany by Walter Gropius. The Bauhaus was created as a merger of the Grand Ducal School of Arts and Crafts and the Weimar Academy of Fine Arts. It quickly established itself as an important center for aesthetic thought that was noted for its unadorned designs and emphasis on functionality. And though the Bauhaus was forced to relocate again and again during the 1920s and 30s and eventually closed when the Nazis took power in 1933, the influence of the Bauhaus continued for decades to come. It would inform the shape of everything from buildings and household objects to fashion and typography. Today we're talking with Elizabeth Otto, Associate Professor of Art History at the University of Buffalo. Her work this year as a fellow at the National Humanities Center challenges conventional understandings of the Bauhaus as she explores the school's intriguing engagement with the irrational, the spiritual, and its pursuits of functional perfection. Libby, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Tanya. So Libby, before we begin, could you outline for us briefly what the object of your study is? When we think about Bauhaus, we may think of it as a particular aesthetics or an architectural movement, but it was a lot more than that. What was the Bauhaus school, and who are the people that populate your study? So the Bauhaus, as you say, is remembered often as an architecture school, as an origin point of minimalism, as a melding of art and craft or art and technology. And it was all of those things. I think that's really important to put out there, that the ideas we have about the Bauhaus are not incorrect. But it was a movement that had 1,400 people involved in it. So as you can imagine, the few names that we remember, Walter Gropius, maybe, or Josef Alpers, Lazo Mohoynaj, uh, Marcel Breuer, the father of brutalism. All of those are true children of the Bauhaus and people who helped to create it and through which the legacy lives on. But uh, there were also literally hundreds of other people at the Bauhaus who were doing things that were perhaps more interesting, or there are aspects of the work of these people that are too little understood, and that's a lot of what I'm trying to do. My research has uncovered particular areas of inquiry that I think haven't been looked at enough. And those are the experimental religions that were being practiced at the Bauhaus, and over time, seem to translate into more general ideas about utopia or the future that involve the spiritual but aren't necessarily an organized religion. And then experiments in gender and sexuality, so thinking after World War I about new ways of being a man or a woman and also thinking about desire in new ways that relate to ideas about gender and sexuality more broadly in Germany at the time. And then the third area is politics. So thinking about uh, utopia through communism was actually an important part of the Bauhaus. And that in particular has been repressed because of the historical events of intervening years, especially during the Cold War. You know, it was not okay to say they were communists, for example, for a variety of reasons. And there was also a right-wing part of the Bauhaus, which doesn't get talked about either. So before we jump into that. Talk to us a little bit about kind of what the received stories or founding myths are of the Bauhaus. Um, You talk in your introduction in particular about two kind of origin myths that you locate 
in the Bauhaus and you explain. Uh, you know, there are two particular myths that animate uh, the Bauhaus. One is that it was the result of trauma coming out of the First World War and that this kind of enables them to uh, have this new creative melding. And then the second one is that it's a kind of cheapening of the avant-garde project that Bauhaus artists take ideas, for example, from constructivism or other more avant-garde movements and make them commercially viable. Those are sort of two of the stories that get told about the Bauhaus. And again, I'd say there's there's truth in them. Um, certainly, the trauma of the World War of the First World War was formative for them. And there's actually a story that doesn't get told enough, I think, which is that Walter Gropius was an officer in the First World War. And while he was serving, uh, the Archduke of Thuringia gave him the project of refounding the Grand Ducal Art School once he was done serving. And so while he's being an officer in the First World War, this architect who had also been a political activist and was interested already in doing something new through architecture, he was thinking about this. And there was a time when he and his men were sheltering in France and the building that they were in took a direct hit and uh, they were all trapped under the rubble of it. And Walter Gropius was trapped in the rubble of a building for three days, and he happened to be near a chimney. So he got enough air to breathe and to call out when someone came nearby. And he was saved, and he was the only one who was saved. So I I think about this, and I think about this man who knows that if he makes it out, he's going to be able to do something really important for the world. And and he's trapped by a building, you know. It's the thing that he thinks maybe can be the total work of art that can save people in the future is the thing that's pinning him down. But ultimately, it's an aspect of the architecture that saves him and no one else. In terms of the myth of the cheapening of the avant-garde, I think that is an unfounded charge. I, these were very much people who cared about the world. And even we see that uh, modern design can go into every house by making it accessible. So, so wanting to make an idea accessible to a public, wanting to make something available to everyone so that daily life can be lived differently is a project worth doing, in my opinion. I want to follow up a little bit on what you said about Walter Gropius, the founder. He wasn't, as you say, the only one who came back from the war really brutalized and traumatized, and really almost an entire generation was either lost or came back mutilated or had some form of shell shock. In your study, I know you also look at masculinity, and it seems to me that that's in a particularly important time in Germany after the humiliation of World War I for men and how men thought of themselves and their place in the, in the world and really their ability to have an effect on the world. What role does masculinity play in your study? That's been a really enriching part of my research to delve into because what I've found in looking, especially in a lot of the photography and photo montage that was made there, so specifically figurative representative works, they had a very complicated discussion going on visually about masculinity and what it was to be a man and what it could be. And so, you know, we see them doing, I think, two things in particular. One is trying to think about 
a new role for the artist. So creating a figure that I refer to as an artist engineer, that's kind of a hybrid sort of who has this technological know-how and not just artistic skills and is able to kind of rethink the world rather than just rethinking the picture plane. And at the same time, these people were mostly pretty left-oriented in their politics, and they were overtly anti-nationalist. And in fact, many of them were not German, right? The Bauhaus was a very international place. So we see them both creating these ideal images of maybe a new way of being a male artist and undercutting them at the same time. And so the artist, the Hungarian artist, Laszlo Mohoy Nagy, who was one of the Bauhaus masters, in particular had one photograph of himself that his wife took, Lucia Maholi, the photographer. And he's in a kind of set of coveralls. He's wearing wire rim glasses. He looks rather stern. And he's just up against a white door. So it's a very stark image. And he used this image a lot to represent himself in publications or in other contexts. But he also did all kinds of things to manipulate this image and make fun of himself. So he printed it in negative. Uh, he cut off the bottom of it and montaged on, on little dainty women's feet. He made it kind of multiple and showed it sort of lurking in the background behind this sun-washed a young woman who's strolling by and doesn't give him the time of day. So there are all these ways that he makes himself look dorky or kind of sinister or lame that that are all twists on this image of himself, you know, as what an artist could be in the future. So I think they were very fraught about their masculinities, and that was really great, you know, that they still felt freedom to make fun of themselves and also make fun of each other. They, they had quite a party scene that was written into the Bauhaus manifesto by Gropius that they would have these sociable events across generations. And they did that. And I think it was really, you know, a fertile ground for them thinking about the whole project of the Bauhaus. It's funny because I think um, that kind of playful part of it and, and that sort of ironic piece that in some ways is lost with how um, and how we think about Bauhaus as this very sleek, minimalist, rationalist pursuit. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what's so fascinating about your work is through your extensive archival research, you've unearthed these kinds of quirky personalities and this sort of more playful side. Yeah. I know you also talk about religion and the role of religion in um, the Bauhaus school. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? From the moment that the school started, more or less, there was an interest in all kinds of aspects of culture that we could fit under the Lebensreform movement or the life reform movement, which had started already in the 19th century. And this could involve changes in diet, changes in dress. For women, it meant getting rid of corsets. But for men, too, it meant perhaps dressing in flowing robes or dressing in nothing at all. Nudism was a big part of this movement. And there was a religion that was founded in the U.S. in the early years of the last century by a German immigrant named Otto Hanisch. The religion was called Mazda's Nan, and it was transported back to Germany and quickly banned, uh, so it had to be based in Switzerland. But Johannes Itten, who was the most influential Bauhaus master of the early years and started teaching there in the summer of 1919, uh, was an adherent of this religion. And so he practiced Mazda's Nan, which was really um, 
mishmash of a bunch of ideas that were circulating in the early 20th century. So theosophy was influential. Zoroastrianism, Otto Hanisch claimed that he'd been raised in Persia in the mountains by Zoroastrian monks. This all seems not to have been true, but it made a great story. And also tantric Hinduism was a part of it. So they had particular ideas about sex, mostly about abstinence, actually. But this, you know, was a part of the draw of the religion, too, that it would involve reconsidering, you know, everything from diet to sex to how you dressed, how you moved. So people at the school who were a part of the Mazdaznan group, and it was most of the students, ate a particular diet. In fact, the whole school followed the Mazdaznan diet. They believed in singing, smiling, having only good thoughts, and, you know, going towards the light, uh, moving away from darkness, which they associated with evil. So this actually is a part of what they're doing in all of their artwork of that time. So, you know, it fits in with the expressionism, but it also, you can see in certain kinds of painting, they're using unusual palettes and unusual forms of lightness and, and subject matter too. And they're even when they're copying, say, a Rembrandt, they're doing it with crazy colors that relate to their ideas about spirituality in the time. I wanted to get back to this transition from kind of crafts to more of a technological approach. And I know you're very interested in looking at the role of women in Bauhaus. And when we think of the sort of big figures of Bauhaus, we tend to think of the male members. What can you tell us about the women and their role? And I know at one point you wrote that they were sort of encouraged to pursue more of the crafts kinds of things like weaving. What have your findings been? So the span of the Bauhaus is from 1919 to 1933, which are the same years as the years of Germany's first democracy, the Weimar Republic. And in the constitution of the Weimar Republic, equality for men and women in all respects was enshrined. So the vote, but also equal access to education. Women then had already been in some of the art academies, but they definitely were allowed to be given the same rights and privileges at the Bauhaus. What happened in practice is there were more young women than young men because of the millions of young German men or European men who were killed in the First World War. And Gropius became concerned that it would be seen as a women's school and not be taken seriously. So behind the scenes, the Council of Masters, which was where all the professors would meet with Gropius, decided quietly that they were going to have higher standards for women who got into the school and that their numbers would be held to a third or less. What this meant on the ground is the women who got into the school were particularly amazing artists. And a lot of them just could do anything in any medium. Parallel to this, they created what they called the women's class, which basically meant that women were strongly encouraged to become weavers. This also meant that the weaving workshop was full of these really dynamic, smart women who did not necessarily want to become weavers, but they embraced it. And it was actually the weaving workshop that was one of the only ones that was financially viable. This was the goal of the Bauhaus longer term, was that it would be able to partner with industry and be self-sustainable. None of the workshops did that except for the weaving workshop over time. So we've talked about the men of the Bauhaus and the women, and some of them married each other. I know your study also looks at queer as a category and as kind of a lived experience of some of the members of Bauhaus. Tell us more about that. 
Sure. This is something I've thought about a lot because, of course, to to talk about a queer Bauhaus is anachronistic, right? Um, that's not a word that they would have recognized even in a German form. Um, so during the Weimar Republic, paragraph 175, which had been a part of law under Wilhelmine Germany, was still on the books and very much uh, in force so that Germany saw sort of both this very strong repression against homosexuality and a lot of activism towards uh, acceptance and even just understanding human sexuality in a much more complicated way than had been done before. And Magnus Hirschfeld is the most important pioneer of this. In the context of the early years of Weimar, the first gay rights film, which is called Different Than the Others, was made with uh, cooperation with from Magnus Hirschfeld. So in the Bauhaus, it was a relatively, I think we could say, heterosexist institution even. It was not that there was any particular activism or open support of either gay or lesbian students. And yet, as they have been throughout history, they were there. So to try to identify people who needed to keep their identity, at least in some ways, under wraps, has has taken some doing. But um, it's, it's really, again, gives a new uh, look at the Bauhaus. And there's one figure in particular uh, called Max Pfeiffer Wattenpool, who um, is remembered as a kind of Fauvist painter who did some nice landscapes. And he also, interestingly, is one of the few men to have done a weaving. Uh, he wove a, a quite a nice rug that's often on display at the Bauhaus Archive in Berlin. He also picked up photography while he was there. And he created, after he left the Bauhaus, but when he was still very much moving in Bauhaus circles, he created neoclassical photos uh, when he was in Rome of architecture, but a whole series of men in the most campy drag. And, uh, you know, they're posing with fans. They have a lot of makeup on. They're being very coquettish. And two of these photographs turned up in a Christie's auction that the, the auction itself was being misrepresented as uh, the photography collection of a new woman from the 20s who just loved photography. It turned out the whole story was a fake, and it was the collection of a prominent Nazi who loved interwar photography and bought these campy photographs of men in drag, too. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm taking just the story of one individual, but I think when we think about Bauhaus networks and we think about Bauhaus stories and projects, when we start to inject, you know, exploring a queer identity through photography and how this can, this was something that, a number of Bauhaus artists were interested in doing, and they knew each other and were in touch with each other, uh, then the Bauhaus project starts to look very different. Libby, you flashed a picture of, of one of his weavings, and it's so strikingly beautiful. I mean, these are brilliant colors and, and very sort of bold geometric designs. And that made me think of the fact that we're talking about material that's so visual and that much of your work involves looking at images and analyzing those. What does it mean for us to be talking and what are we missing when we're not seeing the images? So one of the things I love about art history as a method is no picture can be reduced to a single story. 
And it always allows us to unpack it in very different ways. And I work on the Bauhaus, which was a movement, a place, a moment in time, something that transcends time. And so we can always root down in individual images and objects, but they are always the starting point of a conversation because the stories they can tell are on the one hand endless and you know on the other hand they're they're silent things that without without a conversation they they lose their meaning so you know one thing i could say about this rug by max pfeiffer wattenpool is you know we could tell a story about this as a form of cross dressing through an object that this is a man working in an institution where weaving was extremely gendered as female, and that for a gay man who can't talk about his homosexuality in this repressive cultural situation, this is a way perhaps of expressing something about it in a purely abstract way. On the other hand, when I see this weaving hanging in the Bauhaus archive, an institution very dear to my heart and probably the most important museum for the Bauhaus, I think, well, wait a minute. Why are you showing one of the few men who did a weaving when this is a chance to showcase the women? So we could tell a different story with it too. And I think that's always how how these objects are. Libby, thank you so much for joining us and good luck with your work. I can imagine all kinds of scholars, but also broader audience really getting a lot out of this book and I can't wait to read it. Thanks. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.